Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we talked about sport and 100% Americanism the effort by the American school system to use team sports to turn immigrant children in the inner cities into 100% Americans, as well as the sudden birth of basketball out of pure necessity because, well, you can't play baseball in the winter. Today, we'll be talking about the first modern Olympic Games held in the U.S. and what a complete mess they were. If you're a fan of the Olympics, you're going to have a new appreciation for what we see on TV in modern times after hearing about the Games' complete and utter growing pains. For the full story, here's Matt. No sport or sporting event played a bigger role in the promotion of American identity than the modern Olympic Games. It was the revival of the Olympic Games that was probably the, the pivotal episode in the making of an American athletic identity. Because with the Olympic Games, we get an every four-year athletic competition in which American athletes compete as exactly that, as representatives of the United States. So what I want to do in this session is explore the United States and these Olympic Games. We will first talk about where the modern Olympics come from, and we'll explore American participation in some of the early games. And I want to focus on one of the early games in particular, the the first Olympic Games to be held in the United States. And a lot of people don't know about these games. They were held in 1904 in St. Louis. All right. The Olympic Games were revived in 1896 through the energies of a French aristocrat, the Baron Pierre de Coubertin. And Coubertin was a Frenchman who was very much influenced by the idea of muscular Christianity. He he believed that competitive sports built men of good, sound character. And he revived the Olympic Games as a modern athletic festival for, for a couple of reasons. 
First, he wanted to improve France. He wanted to encourage his fellow Frenchmen to become more vigorously athletic and really to be more like the English and the Americans, people who took competitive sports seriously. They were the athletic model that Coubertin was trying to emulate. The second reason that Coubertin revived these games, he wanted to create an athletic festival that would promote international cooperation throughout the Western world. He wanted to use sports to bring nations closer together, to heal the wounds of past conflicts and wars, and to make sure that no future conflicts and wars would occur. And I think this is interesting because immediately you have a a paradox or or at least a tension at the modern Olympic Games. Coubertin and the organization that he creates, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, they decided right away that individuals had to compete as representatives of nations. They had to wear a flag. Now, it, it didn't have to be like this. Think how different the Olympics would be if athletes competed just as individuals, as global citizens of the world, rather than as representatives of a specific nation. You know, what if the Olympics ignored the idea of nationalism rather than helped reinforce the idea of nationalism? Because one could argue that the Olympics don't heal international wounds. One could argue that all it does is exacerbate them. We'll talk about the Cold War in a, in a future lecture, for example, and how that played out at the Olympic Games. But let's you and I play a game here right now. I submit, for the sake of argument, that the Olympics would be better. They would be more pure if athletes competed as individuals rather than as representatives of nations. You know, no flags. The Olympics would be better if we rooted for or against Bob or Sergey or Ishmael because of traits specific to them rather than the fact that they just happen to be born in the United States or Russia or, or Syria. Now, look, I'm not sure I believe this argument myself, but what if in, instead of the parade of nations where every athlete represents a political entity, what if there was the parade of athletes where the shot putters of the world entered the stadium together and then the swimmers together and the gymnasts together and so on. I think that would be pretty interesting. All of these different body types lumped together and it would be an athletic statement of diversity and togetherness. Well, look, it doesn't matter what I think. I was never consulted. And so from the very start, the Olympics were a nationalist event. Athletes represented nations. And more than any other nation, it was the Americans who seized on the Olympic Games as a place where Americans could make statements about our national strength. You know, in 1896, when the first Olympic Games happened, the first modern Games, the United States was only 120 years old. And so for a a relatively young nation, you know, looking to announce its presence, looking to take its place among the world's powers, the Olympic Games held immense promise. The first of these modern Olympic Games, they took place in Athens, Greece in 1896. And this was fitting as this was essentially the site of the ancient Olympics. Fourteen nations sent representatives 
The United States sent 14 athletes. Almost all of them came from the elite Eastern colleges like Harvard and Yale, or the Eastern athletic clubs like the New York Athletic Club. These were the the young Americans who had the time and the wealth to see their way across the Atlantic and then make their way to Greece. These athletes participated in events like wrestling, cycling, swimming, uh, gymnastics, track and field. And the United States did very well, 11 gold medals, and this was the most from, from any nation. Though the Greeks, they won the most medals overall. In, in the early Olympics, host nation, uh, they usually won the most medals as they had by far the most athletes in attendance. But the Greeks and the representatives from other nations, they were aghast at the behavior of the American spectators who were there. They commented on the constant noises coming from a group of American sailors who were there in attendance. Sis, boom, ba, these young Americans liked to, to chant. The official Greek report of these games, it refers to the, quote, absurd shouts coming from the American fans. A French newspaper reporter, he described the American rooters as overgrown children. Americans, the other people were saying, were taking this all a little too seriously. Four years later, the second Olympic Games, they were in Paris. This is Coubertin's hometown. These games were held as part of the 1900 Paris World's Fair. Um, they were the Olympic Games, but they were not a standalone event. They were a sporting festival that accompanied this World's Fair. I think the, the notable thing about these games is that it was here in Paris that women took part in the Olympics for the first time. An interesting story. The first American woman to win an Olympic event was Margaret Abbott but she never knew she was an Olympic champion. Margaret Abbott was in Paris studying art, and she enjoyed golf. So when she heard about this Paris golf tournament, she entered it and she won. But it's only recent research that has shown that this golf tournament was actually part of the official Olympic program. So Margaret Abbott is now recognized as the first American female Olympic champion but she died decades ago before anyone even knew that. All right, then the games I want to focus on. The next Olympic Games are going to take place in St. Louis, four years later, in 1904. These are the games I want to focus on, right? The first American Olympics. The Baron Coubertin was interested in having the games in the United States. He had once traveled to the United States, and he was very impressed with the thriving college sports culture over here. And Coubertin wanted the scope of his Olympic Games to grow. The, the first two games had been in Europe, so now it was time to go to a different continent. It all made the United States a pretty sensible choice as, as host nation for the 1904 Olympic Games. And the specific choice that the men in the International Olympic Committee made for 1904, the choice they made was Chicago. In 1901, the IOC, they awarded the Olympic Games to Chicago. But these Olympic Games never happened in Chicago, and that's because of a World's Fair that was going on in St. Louis. There was going to be, in, in 1903, a Louisiana Purchase Centennial Exposition. 
This was a World's Fair that would celebrate the Louisiana Purchase, the United States purchase of a giant swath of land from the French in 1803, right? a purchase that instantly doubled the size of the United States. But then the organizers of this St. Louis Exposition, again, originally scheduled for 1903, they fell behind. They announced that they were not ready, and so they were going to postpone for a year. This will take place in 1904. And so there would be a clash with the Chicago Olympics that summer. Two massive events competing for spectators with each other. Do you know that Judy Garland movie or the song Meet Me in St. Louis? It's about Americans going to this St. Louis exposition in 1904. Well, it turns out they were actually a little bit behind in starting to construct their stadium in Chicago, their Olympic stadium. And now faced with competition from a World's Fair in Chicago, they decided to just drop the whole thing. But never mind, they said. The Louisiana Purchase Fair organizers in St. Louis, well, they told the Olympic Committee, we'll be happy to take over. They said, we will make the Olympic Games part of this fair. They can be sporting events associated with our World's Fair. Coubertin was not pleased. He had wanted the bigger city of Chicago. In his exact words, St. Louis was a, quote, mediocre town, and he didn't want his games to be an appendage to a fair once again, you know, like a like a pie-eating contest. Plus, this was the fair that was celebrating one of the great land swindles of all time, a deal in which his France definitely got the short end of the stick. Now, Coubertin was not happy But he had no other options. It was late, and someone had to host the games, so they went to St. Louis. But Coubertin, the head of the International Olympic Committee, he did not even attend the St. Louis Games of 1904. And this set the pattern for what was to come, because almost nobody came. 617 athletes participated in these Olympic Games. 525 of them were from the United States, and almost all of the rest were from Canada. There was no French, Italian, or Scandinavian presence whatsoever. St. Louis was just way too far from athletes from the rest of the world to journey to. It was was much too far from a major ocean port. So the American Olympic organizers... They were looking for ways to spice up their games, to increase interest in these games that had suddenly lost their international flair. And here's one of the things that they came up with. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it ain't pretty. The guy who was running the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Games, it was an American named James Sullivan. And James Sullivan is a really important figure in the history of American sports. He was one of the driving forces behind the creation of the AAU, the the Amateur Athletic Union. And the AAU still exists today. And we're going to talk more about that word and idea, amateurism. We're going to talk a lot about that next time. James Sullivan was a real American patriot, or, or maybe I should say he was an American jingoist. Sullivan was the one who wanted to use these Olympic Games as a showcase for American athletic excellence. You know, he wanted to run laps around the rest of the world and demonstrate American dominance. But then almost no one else came to these games. So he had to come up with a different idea. 
And he came up with an idea. And this idea might be the most unfortunate moment in Olympic history and American sport history. James Sullivan came up with something called Anthropology Days. Okay, remember, these Olympic Games were part of that 1904 World's Fair. Well, one of the exhibits at this fair, and I am not kidding here, they had at this fair what was essentially a human zoo. This was a collection of exhibits in which so-called primitive people, and that's the word that they use, primitive people from around the world, um, would be put on display. They, they had people from around the world who lived in pens where they could be observed by the American fairgoers. And exhibits like this human zoo were actually quite common at these turn of the 20th century fairs, not just in the United States. And the idea behind them was this. By displaying these people, the exhibits were meant to suggest the superiority of the fairgoers. You know, in this instance, it was look at those people in their straw huts and their animal skin loincloths. And look how civilized we Americans are by contrast. There were pygmies from Central Africa, Indians from the United States and Mexico. There were Syrians and Hawaiians. Many of these were people from lands that had recently been conquered by the United States military. So we might think of these human beings almost as trophies from American conquests. One group of people I think stands out here, the Igorots from the Philippines. You know, at that very moment, 1904, the American military was pacifying the Philippines in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. And the Americans who came to the fair, they were especially interested in seeing the Igorots. And that's because they heard a story that the Igorots ate dogs. It turns out that back in the Philippines, the Igorots rarely ate dog meat, but it was not unheard of. It was a, a delicacy of theirs. But then the story got out that the Igorots were dog eaters. So the city of St. Louis provided them with a supply of 20 dogs per week, right? 20 stray dogs per week. And the fair organizers called the Igorot village Dogtown. And just so you know, it was at this fair that a new American food fad emerged. A German immigrant now living in St. Louis, he took the traditional German bratwurst, he placed it in an open bun, and in honor of the Igorots, he called it the hot dog. That's where it comes from. So now you know. After the break, the calamity of the 1904 Olympic Marathon. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! 
I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. All right. You're probably wondering, what does any of this have to do with the Olympics? Well, these exhibits were at the fair. I think this was bad enough. But then the American sportsman, James Sullivan, he had an idea. James Sullivan firmly believed that it was the white American athlete who was at the top of the human hierarchy, you know, in terms of brains and brawn. And now he was going to be denied the opportunity to prove this because barely anyone else was showing up at these games. So he thought, why not prove white American athletic superiority by demonstrating the athletic inferiority of these non-white, non-American peoples? Let's have the people in these exhibits play sports. And the anthropologists from the nearby university, they can study them while they do. And so that's what the anthropology days were. They were the anthropological and popular viewing of these people from around the world, competing in both Olympic and non-Olympic events. Let me give you a sense of how poorly thought out the anthropology days were. They asked the competitors, for example, to play water polo. But the competitors got to the pool and they refused to jump in. I mean, many of them, like the American Indians from the Southwest, they didn't know how to swim. These people from around the world, they were asked to compete in sports they had never seen before. And so they did the high jump poorly. They threw the discus and the javelin poorly. The 100-meter dash, it was chaos. With so many languages being spoken, they had a hard time getting everyone set. And then the starting gun went off and frightened some of the runners. 
And then none of the runners knew they were supposed to break through the tape at the end. They all dove underneath it. It was a farcical experiment. But here was the conclusion as printed in the official report of the St. Louis Games. Quote, The representatives of the savage and uncivilized tribes proved themselves inferior athletes. That was the scientific assessment. And the events confirmed James Sullivan's hypothesis. Yes, those quote-unquote savages, maybe they could throw a spear, but they could not play a proper game of tennis or throw the discus as far as a white man. I mean, never mind that they had never seen a tennis racket or a discus in their life. But if playing skilled and agile tennis is your definition of what makes someone civilized, well then, these people were uncivilized. So the anthropology days, they were a disaster. Uh, They were a cruel farce masquerading as sport. And that's the way I want to describe the 1904 Olympic marathon as well. A cruel farce masquerading as sport. This was one of the all-time great Olympic fiascos from start to finish. Here's how the marathon played out in 1904. Uh, This race was just under 25 miles. The the marathon was not made officially a 26-mile, 385-yard event until the next Olympics, 1908. Although one of the runners actually did run 26 miles, and that's because he had to run an extra mile while being chased by a stray dog. This gives you a sense of the craziness that's to come. This marathon, it it was basically the Hunger Games. All right, first of all, the race took place in the middle of the day on August 30th. It's hot in St. Louis in August. Uh, Estimates place the heat index, right, temperature plus humidity, at 125 degrees. And even though it was blazing hot and super humid, there were only two water stations, one at the six-mile mark and one at mile 12. And that's because James Sullivan was in charge of the marathon. And he had another great idea. He decided to do a little research on what he called purposeful dehydration. What would happen if marathoners had almost no water? Sullivan would be arrested if he did that today. And then making it even worse, the marathon route, it was a collection of dusty roads. You know, automobiles chugged alongside the runners, kicking up dust and suffocating them. Most of the competitors, they were middle distance runners, men who had never run a marathon in their lives. And the guy I'm rooting for was a Cuban mailman, a guy named Felix Carvajal. A couple weeks before the race, Carvajal, he took a steamship from Havana, Cuba. He took it to New Orleans and he disembarked and he promptly lost all his money in a craps game. And so he walked the 700 miles to St. Louis. Carvajal shows up at the starting line on this blistering hot day. He's wearing a long sleeve shirt, long dark pants, a beret, a pair of clunky boots. One of his fellow runners took pity on him and found a pair of scissors and at least cut off his trousers at the knee. And I gotta say, Carvajal did all right. He didn't win, but despite slowing down to chat with spectators, Despite stopping to pick apples from an orchard, rotten apples, which made him vomit, and then despite taking a nap during the race, a nap 
He finished fourth. He almost meddled. I, I love Felix Carvajal. In the end, the marathon turned out to be between two Americans. Their names were Fred Lortz and Thomas Hicks. And these guys, Lortz and Hicks, they were actual trained long-distance runners. But they were struggling with the conditions as well. A few miles in, Thomas Hicks, he was in the lead, but he was suffering. It, It was hot, and he desperately wanted water. His coaches, instead, they gave him a mix of whiskey, egg whites, and strychnine. You know, strychnine in small doses has an amphetamine-like effect, and it was used as an athletic stimulant back then. I mean, Hicks was basically doing crystal meth at this point. So exhausted and, and, and poisoned, Hicks begins to fade. But don't give up on him yet. All right, also suffering was the other American, Fred Lortz. At the nine-mile mark, Lortz started cramping badly. And so Lortz, he did the smart thing. He quit. He gives up running. He waves down one of the accompanying automobiles, gets in. He says, take me to the finish line. Uh, He gets in the car and he's waving it at spectators and fellow runners as he drives on. And then after riding in this automobile for 11 miles, and I will repeat that, after riding in this automobile for 11 miles, Lord suddenly thinks to himself, hey, I feel pretty good. So he hops out of the car and he starts running toward the finish. And lo and behold, not surprisingly, Lortz was the first person to enter the stadium and cross the finish line, though he had only run 14 of the 25 miles. But the crowd didn't know this. They roared. They were ecstatic. An American had won. Fred Lortz was basking in their cheers. Alice Roosevelt the daughter of the president, Teddy Roosevelt, she was just about to put a laurel wreath on his head when someone came forward and said, more or less, I just saw that dude riding in a car. Just like that, the cheers turned to booze and Fred Lortz was disqualified. So now it's the other American, Thomas Hicks. Remember him? I mean, here he comes, sort of. As Hicks neared the finish line, he was so dehydrated, he was hallucinating. He had no idea where he was, babbling incoherently. The the rat poison they were giving him didn't help either, I'm sure. His trainers held him up, one on each side, and they dragged him into the stadium and across the finish line. Thomas Hicks was the winner. Gold medal to the nearly unconscious Thomas Hicks. That's the St. Louis Marathon. That's St. Louis, 1904, the the first Olympics in the United States. A bit of a fiasco. And here is the cherry on top. As bad as it was for those who were told to participate in the anthropology days, and as bad as it was for those poor heatstroke marathoners, it was even worse for the water polo players. Within six months of their Olympic competition ending, four Olympic water polo players were dead. They contracted typhoid from the lagoon where they played their water polo matches. And it turns out this lagoon was also the body of water where all the animal waste from the fair exhibits was being dumped. And by August, when the water polo event occurred, the lagoon was a festering pool of bacteria 
and disease. I'll say it again. Ah, sports. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, we examine one of the greatest athletes in American history, Jim Thorpe. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.